Welcome, book fiends, to the Unlocked Tomb podcast, presented by Wicked Good Books, a reread podcast centered around the Locked Tomb series by Tim Samir. I'm your host, Nick, joined here with my co-host, Emily. Hello. We'll be joined this season by two guests who are enjoying the material for the first time. Back from the dead, it's Lisa. Hello. And let's not forget our very own member of the 10th house, Junior. That'll be me. (laughs) All right, on this episode, we are on episode uh, eight of our podcast. We are covering chapters 20 through 22 of Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Before we begin, however, I wanted to start off with some show notes at the top of the show. So we have been receiving uh, lots of great feedback and support from the community. So we just wanted to take a moment at the top of the show to say thank you to everyone who's tuned in or who shared the podcast, especially with their friends or family and those who are fans of this book series. It really means a lot to us, and we hope that the Unlocked Tomb community continues to grow. I don't know if you guys noticed, but there was a interview from In the Margin, it's like a book blog, um, by Kiara Sakum. Um and she interviewed Tam Samir about the Lock Tomb series and about Nona. And uh, I'm only bringing this up because she says something, Tamson says something in the interview that caught my eye and immediately started making me just theorize and create conspiracies in my head. And I'm going to read the quote from her. Now, this will mean more to Emily, but I think at this point, I hope that Lisa and Junior can appreciate a quote like this, but also kind of like maybe help out since it's, you know, it's fresh in your mind and this is your first time going. And it's kind of like the first time playing D&D or the first time, you know, stepping onto a crime scene. You know, it can't hurt to have fresh eyes on something like this. And so let me just read the quotes. So it'll make a lot more sense. In the interview, it's a pretty phenomenal interview. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. But for now, a quote from Tamsin um, she's asked essentially about uh, inspiration uh, for the Lock Tomb and different video games and material she consumes and uh, crossing genres, splicing them together, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, and horror. And uh, to one of the questions, Tamsin responds, There's at least one big concrete secret that I hope to explore in Electo. There are hints about this in Gideon. We definitely didn't see all the Canaan House in the first book. And as for the mysterious force, it's going to be less or more mysterious uh, by the end of the book. Also, love the idea of a haunted house as a house possessed. I love it when a place becomes the antagonist. There are still horrors in Canaan House. Canaan House is returned to in Harrow and in its own uh, very weird and oblique way. And does return in Nona, or at least a prequel version of it, you get to see why the house is haunted. Now, I wanted to bring this up because essentially what she's saying is that everyone missed something in this book, Gideon the Ninth. Absolutely. Uh, in Canaan House, it's like a theory or an Easter egg or just something that everyone has missed so far. There is one secret to Canaan House that has not been unlocked by uh, boneheads like us, like Emily and I, and Lisa and Junior, this is your first time reading the book, so I'm just super excited to have just four sets of eyeballs now, scourging each line, looking for something that just seems out of place, or something we've already read. I think, actually, in these chapters we're talking about today, 
it comes up, at least my theory. So I'm going to talk about it when we get there. Well, I think you're right, because as soon as I read that interview um, and then when we were prepping for this episode, recording these last you know, for a few chapters, I was definitely reading into it a lot more. And I feel like these last few chapters have become really plot heavy. And so I think I, every single line, I was like, is it this? Is this what she was talking about? So I have so many highlights and underlines with like question marks and foreshadowing and all this stuff in the book, especially for these last few chapters. So I think I think there's something there, but I haven't, I want to do one more reread before I start to make like big theories. You know what I mean? Yeah, I got you. So I'm super excited. I love when authors like get to talk about their work and I love even more when they're just like, there's actually an Easter egg that everyone missed. And now it's like, excuse me? Like challenge It's like accepted. the where's Waldo. Yeah. Yes. I was like I have to solve it. I love that. So I just wanted to bring that up because it, it was posted, I think yesterday or today. Um, super great interview. Again, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. And uh, I'm super excited to see if the unlocked tomb can be the ones that discover by the end of it all. Uh, Cause I'm sure we'll talk about it in our rap episode. What we think the, um, this little mystery or the secret that no one's uncovered is. I just hope we haven't missed it. I mean, we might have. You know, like, you know, we're, we're now 20 chapters in, and now I'm like, well, what if it was in the first 20 chapters if we missed it? We'd have to reread it again. Yeah, that's why I said I want to reread it one more time yeah. before I actually do it. She's referencing Kane and House in the interview, so we know that it has to be from when they arrive to where we are now. So that's... Not like the whole... But they still, they arrive in like, what, chapter three? Yeah. Yeah, it's like chapter three <laughs> or four, so... <laughs> still, it's a, this, a chunk that we can, you know, dissect. But I think something happens in these chapters that I was like, it's that. So when we get to it, I'm going to like ding, ding, ding it, and we'll go from there. We need we need one of those uh, like crime pinboard walls. Yes. Yeah, you know, like, like where you put pictures up everywhere and then you connect the string. strings. Like <laughs> I'm I'm shocked that Lisa doesn't already have something like that, like the Charlie Day meme where there's all the like Yeah. From always sunny. You don't know that I don't. <laughs> I I'm imagining Lisa looking up right now from a mic and there's like this giant board of locked tomb pins. <laughs> so little do you know I've been doing this all along. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so before we begin, I did want to talk about the uh, Twitter page for the Unlocked Tomb, which is part of the Wicked Good Books Twitter. Um, we recently posted a just a fun post. It's like Meet the Bone Squad. Essentially, it's these four infographics that talk about each of us in like a candid way, just to kind of get to know your podcasters. Um, I don't know if everyone's into that kind of content, but I always love when I find a new podcast learning about the people involved. So they're not just like a, you know, oblique voice talking in my ear for hours at a time. Um, it's cool to like see their face and see, you know, what these people are all about. So I'm hoping that sharing that information uh, with you all on Twitter is cool and you're interested in it. I also reposted it on our Instagram um, and we'll be making notes of that as well for uh, future seasons of the show we'll probably be updating it um also the nona arcs have started popping up out in the wild i've been seeing them out on the instagram people you know gloating i would maybe say <laughs> or bragging that they have them um so it's 
it's May right now when we're recording this. And so we only have a few more months until it's out. But it's definitely starting to kind of do that ramp up to the release date. Listen, I'm not, I have not gloated once about my, my sh- I mean, <laughs> maybe gloat is a strong word, uh, but maybe it's, it's rooted in my own jealousy I, I, of seeing that. I have received an arc for Nona the Ninth. Now I'm holding off until, um, my birthday coming up in June. Naomi from Naomi Stairs, who did the arc for our channel. She also received an arc for Nona the Ninth and she read it in a single sitting in one day. Oh, no. And she told me to not do that. She said, enjoy it. Yeah. Take your time with it. She regrets the fact that she finished it in one day. So that's what I'm going to do, except that one day starts in June on my birthday. June 1st. (laughs) Ideally, I want to finish the podcast season one for the reread for getting the ninth. And I also want to kind of like brush up on Hera before I jump into it. But it's getting really hard with it staring at me on the shelf. So with that being said, now that all of our pieces of news and updates are done, let's jump right into it. Chapter 20 Prospectus. The following morning, the necromancers of the ninth house make their way back down the hatch to continue their search for more lictor tests to solve. Harrow is certain there may be more keys to obtain. Gideon and Harrow come to the site of the grisly murders, careful to step around the blood of the fallen. The two are about to head deeper into the area when Lady Dulcinea, moving around on crutches, appears with her cavalier in tow. Harrow isn't pleased to see Dulcinea, and less thrilled when she tells the Ninth that she thinks the four of them ought to team up. Dulcinea explains that she's actually completed one of the theorem labs, but doesn't think she's physically strong enough to tackle the next one alone. Gideon, sure that Hera will disapprove, is shocked when Hera agrees to team up with the Seventh House. Delighted by their acquiescence, Dulcinea leads them down the halls to the laboratory's 710. In the first lab, there's a giant crack down the middle of the floor that they must cross. Protesilaus carries Dulce over and then Gideon helps Harrow cross. Pro and Harrow go farther up ahead, leaving Dulcinea to gossip about how Pro fought Column the Eighth over the slight the night prior. They all arrive at the door with a human teeth decorating the top. They have to each give Dulcinea some of their blood so they may enter as Dulce set up her own wards earlier. Once through the teeth door, they arrive in a metal chamber with yellow and black stripe running across the floor. On the other side of the stripe is an invisible ward that makes Harrow's hand rapidly age and decay when she crosses it. Dulcinea has reasoned that there are two spells overlapping. Harrow doesn't believe it, but not even her bone magic can cross the ward, and soon she's bleeding from the effort. As Harrow and Dulcinea debate on what to do next, Dulcinea reveals they were not her first choice as partners. She asked Palamides first, who turned her down, and would have asked the 8th house had Pro not punched one of them. After serious consideration, Harrow decides that she is going to have to siphon Gideon in order for her plan to work. If the connection should be severed at any point before the task is complete, Harrow will die. The connection will also cause Gideon an immense amount of pain, but Gideon loves a challenge almost as much as she loves her sword. Harrow begins siphoning and Gideon feels a combination of electrifying pain, 
muscles sore, and the distinct sensation of withering and decaying. Gideon goes in and out of consciousness. While siphoning Gideon's essence, Hera is able to retrieve the key while Dulcinea tells Gideon that she's not allowed to die, as much as she feels like she wants to at that moment. But even with Dulcinea cheering her on, Gideon is sure she's going to die when, to her surprise, she hears Harrow calling her name. She regains consciousness to the realization this is the first time Harrow hasn't called her griddle. Harrow demands Lady Dulcinea leave them be, which she does, after pawing and cooing over a partially drained Gideon. Harrow and Gideon limp back to their room. Eyelashes are missing, face paint has melted off, their hair is shorter, but they have acquired another key which they will turn over to Dulcinea after they use it. As they nearly collapse from exhaustion, it would seem Gideon and Harrow might have a newfound respect for one another, but for now, they sleep. Whoo! That was like the <laughs> longest prospectus I've ever had to read, which to be fair, for it's you. one of the longest chapters. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, this is one of the Wait. longest chapters, and it's a lot to summarize because a lot of things are happening all at once. A lot and a little happens because, like, right. what they do is a lot, but they mostly just like gab the whole time. But um, before I jump into my thoughts on the chapter, I want to kick it to Emily on the reread. What was I like going into these chapters, having spent so much time away from them? I think what stood out to me the most is the a little bit of the details on the magic system. Because when you're first reading it, I was so entranced with like Dulcinea and Harrow and Gideon and all of their interaction. But on reread, I was really paying attention to Dulcinea's description of the, um, the, the, how it's like two spells overlaying each other and how, like what avulsion means and what was really happening in terms of the magic system to why this trial was even a thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. What did you think about this Lictor trial, um, Junior and Lisa, going into it for the first time? Like, we've seen a couple of them now, or at least, like, the main one that Harrow and Gideon went through um, with, like, the interchanging doors and Gideon fighting the the construct and Harrow having to see through her. Now we get this very different but very adjacent trial where, again... The Cavalier and the Necromancer have to work in tandem to complete. What did you guys think about it? Um, what were your thoughts? I think for me, um, them actually this time uh, working with um, the others um, in this particular chapter and Dulcinea really schooling <laughs> Harrow in a way, telling her, you know, this is, you know, I don't know if it was this chapter where she basically talked about how, yeah, she may be dying, but um, but she still has a brain, meaning that Dulcinea is pretty smart. She, you know, she's a she's a smart girl. She knows what she's talking about, and she really wants them to to listen because you know at this point, as as you can tell, their their lives are really on the line here, you know, trying to cross the the you know this this threshold. So for for me, you know, seeing them actually team together was something that I wasn't sure was going to happen being a new reader so it was very intriguing to you know uh, see them working t together and then how they also work together down the road and um and some of the, the later chapters that we'll talk about and again dulcie being super humble coming to them being like i already got one of the keys but for this test 
next, the, the next test I found, I know I'm not physically capable of doing it, so let's team up. And there's a sense of like um, vulnerability there that we've seen consistent with that character. Um, but it's really cool to see it being used in kind of yeah, a different way. And she was way. very thankful too when, when you know, Harold kind of like made it seem like it was her idea to to invite her on, you know, to this quest of, you know, being able to, you know, cross over. But Yeah, I do think it's interesting seeing them start to kind of form an alliance. Not really. Like Harold Hark is keeping everybody at arm's length, right? Even Gideon. But they are this is kind of the first time where they're starting to really like Junior said, work together. Why do you think that Harrow was so, not, I wouldn't say so cool with working with them, but so quick to just agree to work together with uh, Dulcinea and um, and Pro? Well, I think she just wants the keys. You know, she just wants to get through it. So she's Agree. just, it's not, it has nothing. I don't, I mean, I don't want to necessarily that it could have been anybody from any of the houses. Um, I think that she also probably sees that Gideon has some sort of, fascination or attraction to Dulcinea so she might be more willing to work with her than other people over the house because she has some sort of trust in Gideon and if Gideon has some sort of trust in Dulcinea although we know that she doesn't really trust her but there's some sort of um relationship there that I think Harrow decided to allow them to work together in that sense because it was Dulcinea and not somebody else. But I think that at the end, Harrow also just wants the keys, so she's going to do what she can to get them. Yeah, I think I think Harrow's just very eyes on the prize. Yeah, I think she's very eyes on the prize, and she probably was also not too mad that it was Dulcinea and not somebody else. What were you going to say before, Lisa? I just was going to... I basically answered it. I just... It was cool to see that, you know, them working together with somebody else and to bring that in because I think that there is a weird triangle between Harrow, Gideon, and Dulcinea <laughs> in terms of just like in general. It's like they're not, none of them are really friends, but Gideon kind of likes Harrow to a degree and she's kind of fascinated with Dulcinea, but then Dulcinea and Harrow don't get along. So there's like a weird thing. So that was an interesting uh, interaction, I thought. Yeah, well, in the text, it was funny, too, because when Dulcinea was using all her, you know, kind of um, wily ways, I guess, or like what her like seductress side, kind of, where she's kind of trying to swoon Harrow or use her to, to get Harrow and manipulate Harrow. It said that Gideon was undergoing complicated feelings about not being the center of the seventh's attention. <laughs> so it builds on that dynamic, like you said. What do you think it is about Dulcinea that uh, Gideon is so drawn to, Lisa? Um, I think that, I mean, the way that she's described is she's pretty. So, like, it's, I think, yeah, that, she's... I think that Gideon has, like, an actual attraction to her, but then also she is this very frail human who is also very probably powerful. So it's like how it's almost, it's almost like a thing where it's like, wow, this person can be extremely physically frail, but extreme, like what she says, she's like, I might, my body might be, I might be down physically, but my brain's not down. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, this person can be extremely smart, but extremely frail. I feel like to Gideon, she probably feels very familiar too, right? Cause she's sickly and dying. Right. And she probably blends in with, the type of people that Gideon grew up with, but then she's also this um, genuinely beautiful, classy, just 
com- tries very hard to compose herself and, and be kind person. And that's like a complete foil or total foil from what she's used to with Harrow. I almost feel like Dulcinea is one of several characters in this book that is a foil to Harrow because to Gideon, she's only ever known necromancers to be like Harrow. So coming across a necromancer like Dulcinea, who's incredibly kind to her, gives her attention that's not, doesn't seem to be underhanded or um, like she's, she's, you know, scheming, you know, doing things with a ulterior motive. Um, So I think that's a part of it too. I think we've talked about it before on the show about Gideon just having like um, not the best uh, or, or at least suffering from a type of social anxiety um, and so having someone like Dulcinea pay attention to her um, and be interested in her is just an interesting thing to me that Gideon seems to be always drawn to and that these two characters always seem to bump into each other. But also, I, going into it, especially the second time, um, reading everything, like at least trying to under a microscope, essentially, still feel like, like uh, you know, Dulcinea has given me no reason to either not necessarily trust her or like just the, the way she comes off compared to the other necromancers. She really is um, like a kind person in the in the way that Gideon is a kind person to those she meets. I didn't know what you, Junior, or Lisa, you, Lisa, thought about um, about that. Yep. I mean, I also think um, one thing that we haven't really mentioned, which I kind of picked up on in this chapter is when they are crossing over the the uh, the crack or whatever, the, the separation in the floor, you know, how Gideon is very helpful towards her. And when Tamsin describes how, she, you know, she's holding her arm, I think Gideon uh, is also a bit of a caretaker and actually cares for Dulcinea in a way that she hasn't really cared about anybody else before. And I, And I think mm-hmm. these are all new feelings to her. So I think yes. she kind of feels good about herself being like, it's almost like, you know, when you have like your first relationship, you know, when you're like young and it's like you want to do everything for that person. Or even if it's just a new relationship and you've been in other relationships before, but you want to do everything for that person to make them feel good. I feel like Gideon is, that's what, what Gideon is starting to, to feel with Dulcinea. And, and I see this relationship developing further down the road, but she definitely does have feelings for her. And in a way, I think it's like a necromancer crush that she has on Dulcinea. You know, and that's the way that I'm looking at it. Right. It's kind of like yeah, gr- exactly. Grim so crush. Um, that's the way I actually look at it. That's like the other side that I also saw. So it's like a it's a it's a tragic crush. It's like one of those like mid '90s a walk to remember <laughs> yeah. kind of crushes. Absolutely. <laughs> What's that book that you like, Lisa? Is it what Fault Fault in Our Stars or something like yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, every 16 year old <laughs> liked that book. Soul siphoning. Now, this is a pretty interesting concept to me. And the fact that it is the the center of this trial, of this Lichter trial for them to go through. Um, what do you guys think about it? And how do you think it feels? Like, it's it was so easy for me the first time reading it to fall on to, like, the Dementors and Harry Potter, the soul sucking and, and, and video games seem like your essence being drained away. And on reread, 
because I wasn't bringing any of that baggage with me this time, I just kind of went into it as a fan of this series. It was really cool to experience all these uh, emotions and these, especially these pains, in a whole new light, or at least um, unclouded by other references or, or other comparisons while reading it. And I wanted to ask specifically Sin Jr. what you guys think about Soul Siphoning, but also after that, kicking it to Emily about what you think soul siphoning feels like and uh, what were your thoughts about it the second time? Well, one of my things is, because I think that earlier in part of this chapter when they're discussing that is they brought up Thanergy again. Um, and I remember a few episodes before, back when we were in early chapters, I think they first brought up Thanergy and you had asked us in that episode what we thought it was going to be. And I... Didn't, I don't remember what my answer was. I'm not 100% sure what I thought it was. But um, this soul siphoning feels like that's probably... I don't think that they... Say, did they say that that's, that is what it is? Do we, do, we have, do we now know what Thanergy is? Thanergy is the death, the inner, death energy. Which, death juice. Yeah. Death energy. Okay, so and Thalergy kind of is like... Yeah, Thalergy is like life juice <laughs> that thalergy is life juice thanergy is death juice that's like the the easy way to remember it but essentially like life and death energy um one that consumes uh and one that um i don't, I don't want to say heals because it's not the right verbiage but it, it repurposes um i was gonna say like restore yeah. almost in a on sense. a side note since you mentioned the the life and death juice that brings me to my favorite quote of this chapter which would be Gideon saying, I'd rather be your battery than feel you rummaging around my head. You want my juice? I'll give you juice. To which Hara responds, under no circumstances will I ever desire your juice. <laughs> I knew, Lisa, that you were gonna, that was going to be your too. favorite quote. I was like, as soon as I heard it, I was like, this is going to be in the podcast. I already know Lisa's going to bring it up. <laughs> what about you, Gina? What do you think about soul siphoning? Uh, did You know... Did you draw any comparisons to other things you read or like how to make you feel thinking about your body, like going from like, cause Gideon's feeling like electrified, but also like she's withering away. But it's, it's like a confusion, confusing combination of uh, emo- emotions and, and feelings. Yeah. Um, I think for me, um, initially going into it before I really started, I guess kind of like, deciphering everything that was happening in that moment. Um, I, whenever I think of like soul siphoning, I automatically think of Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat <laughs> and how he can like take other people's um, abilities and he just like sucks mm-hmm. the life out of them. Love so that, 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 that was what first came to my mind when I think the, the, the first time that, I, you know, we uh, talked about it, but um, actually uh, reading the book now, I think it's like, you're almost experiencing um, the death of yourself, but then you're also seeing the life of the person who is doing the uh, soul siphoning. Um, and you're kind of going in between both, in, like in a way it's like, you have to kind of stay like in a certain, um, I guess, section of almost being dead and, being alive that's the way that i actually kind of viewed it um and it was just like interesting how um you know how they described 
you know, how Gideon was actually feeling during this process. Uh, she almost felt like she was being electrocuted. And then when, you know, they talked about how she um, was really like trying to push through it. And um, the, the battle that she actually had between like almost feeling like she's going to lose her life, but then like she feels like she can take it on. Like there was a lot going on, you know, but um, to me, that would just be a very weird feeling to have to experience and the pain that she had had to go through uh, just seems like something that not a normal, normal person would would be able to handle very, very, very well. For sure. (laughs) What about you, Em? See, what I was going to say is it's, it's when you ask, especially like the pains of being siphoned or drained. I think uh, Tamsin Muir does a really good job describing, but also in Gideon's voice, giving us an idea of what she's feeling because her descriptions of pain are simultaneously entertaining and funny, but also horrifying. You know what I mean? Um, Because just the way that, of course, Gideon's voice is. And I expect nothing less. (laughs) Right, exactly. At this point, am I am I really shocked? Tamsin <laughs> likes to walk that line between comedy and horror, and they're both very similar uh, genres when it comes to writing. Like how the uh, timing is important, and how much you show and how much you tell, and they they're very similar uh, genres in that regard and, and writing styles. And it's cool to see Gideon be this culmination, this epicenter of those two things. This horrible things happening to him that sounds like it's just absolutely excruciating. But because it's Gideon, and you feel like if there's anybody else, we wouldn't get that commentary, or at least it wouldn't be that comical. So it's a whole different lens um, thinking of it that way. Yeah, it, w- it would definitely be more horrifying than it would be like for sure, you know, comical and horrifying. But at the same she time. pulls through. Our girl, our ginger, Gideon the Ninth, pulls through, and there seems to be one little thing that kind of gets her through this whole thing, and that's the fact that Harrow shouted her name and she actually used her full name not her pet name that harrow has for her and i don't know if griddle uh, i didn't know if that happened and and you lisa were like doing this like victory dance or what was going on in your guys heads at all any of you when that chapter was happening that moment happened but i wanted to kind of finish this prospectus with that um inquiry yeah, that was, um, I mean, yes, I was just like, you know, like my little heart fluttered because she finally said her name. But aside from that, besides that moment, there was one other moment that I just wanted to bring up really quick, which was when um, it has something similar to that whole feeling. But when um, Gideon, Gideon and Harrow step away to discuss what they were going to have to do, and Harrow is telling her, she's like, do you understand what I'm going to have to do? You know, and Gideon's like, yes, I understand. And she's like, you're still going to do it? And she's like, yeah. And she's like, why? And Gideon says, she's like, because you asked. And that, and Harrow was just like, that's all you require? And you could read that in two separate ways. You could read that as in yes. Gideon's doing it because Harrow asked. Or they're doing she's doing it because Harrow finally asked her as opposed to, like, demanding it. And I thought that was a really, like, nice interaction to see. Yeah, I loved that. I love that, yeah. too. Ha ha, said Gideon. First time you didn't call me Griddle. And then died. <laughs> Again, Tamsin just... Putting, Ka- kind of. Yeah, right, right. Kind well, of. basically. Really, yeah, basically, yeah, that's what she said. In the, in the, in the dramatic <laughs> way, for sure. So yeah. closing out chapter 20, we're going to jump into chapter 21. 
Chapter 21 Prospectus After recovering from a near-death experience at the hands of Harohar, Gideon ruminates on the pain she experienced during the soul siphoning. She wakes to find the series of notes left for her by Harrow. The notes inform Gideon that Harrow has taken their new key and gone to inspect the new lab laboratory it will access. Harrow demands that Gideon stay in their room and speak to no one except Polymides Sextus, who will be checking on her later after her near-death experience. While Gideon is trying to get it together and clean herself up, Camilla VI arrives. She checks Gideon's vision and asks her a few questions about her general health. While she agrees that Gideon seems fine, Camilla, like Harrow, finds that more concerning because she should barely be alive. Camilla tells Gideon the reason Polymides refused to help Lady Dulcinea with the trial is because he thought it would cause Camilla permanent brain damage, if not kill her. Despite being instructed by Harrow to remain in their room, Camilla helps Gideon put on some face paint and takes her to find some food. They come upon Coronabeth arguing with Teacher about the keys. Coronabeth wants her own key to the facility, but Teacher tells her it's one key per house. She then asks for Magnus V's key, but Teacher admits it is missing. Polymides offers to take Coronabeth down to the trials himself. This displeases Camilla. Coronabeth asks Polymides not just for an escort, but to help her get all the keys, and in return, she will make the sixth house wealthy and give them anything they could want. But Polymides declines and only plans to show her where she needs to go. Gideon learns that each key is unique to the person who finds it, and there are very few unclaimed ones left now. She had not realized this, and now wonders how Lady Dulcinea plans to use the new key they retrieved together once Harrow is finished with it. Corona Beth also notes that it means no one can truly win. If they all hold different unique pieces of the puzzle, Teacher agrees and even concedes that there is no imperial law in the first house. There is nothing preventing the members of each house from murdering one another to obtain the keys. Corona Beth runs off to tell Lenthe what she's learned. Polymides probes Teacher about Magnus the fifth key, learning he received it shortly before his and Lady Abigail's untimely demise. Gideon and Cam follow Polymides through a door into a pantry off the dining hall, where they run into Captain Deuteros. Deuteros and Polymides argue over allegiances. Pal declines the captain's offer to work together, and for a moment it appears there may be an altercation. Instead, the second storms off. Polymides continues onward with Gideon and Cam in tow and leads them to the morgue. They discuss the keys and how Polymides has known they were unique from the start. He is certain that people are going to start doing horrible things to each other to retrieve them. Gideon watches as Polymides takes the wedding ring off Magnus's finger and also cuts his pockets off his clothes as part of a spell to locate the fifth's key ring using the object's energy. Polymides takes Gideon into his confidence, tells her he is certain the fifth house necromancer and cavalier died of more than a fall. Before they can finish their conversation, they are interrupted by a sound. It appears that someone was listening at the door. They look, to the, they look into the corridor just in time to catch a glimpse of the fourth house teens. Thank you, Junior. This is a big one. So we're starting to see some drama unfold between the houses. And it seems as though uh, Gideon is, I wouldn't say at the center of it, but it, she keeps being utilized. Well, the ninth keeps being utilized by the other houses. Um, and we're not 100% certain why. But I love that Gideon wakes up 
to a bunch of notes again. And the fact that Harrow left her bread in a drawer, I don't know why it cracks me up every time, but just like the image of like a loaf of bread or like a, like a, a baguette just like sticking out of a drawer just kills me. Um, but jumping into uh, getting waking up and feeling kind of sore, what do you guys think about her feeling fine? Now, Camilla goes to check on her, which Harrow mentions in one of her notes, because she's sure that Gideon's going to be in dire straits. Like Gideon's going to be fucked up. And when she gets there, she's like unnerved that Gideon is okay, that she's better than okay. She seems mostly fine. In fact, Gideon's biggest complaint is that she's a little tired and hungry, which <laughs> my girl, I just love that Gideon's just eating this whole book. But uh, I found that interesting. I didn't know if that stuck out to you guys and what you thought about that, um, especially with Camilla saying the reason Palamides denied Dulcinea any aid or help with that trial is because he didn't want Camilla to experience brain damage. I think on reread, it stands out a little bit more because when I first read it, I guess I just assumed Gideon would get through it fine. But on reread, it really stands out how shocked Camilla is that she's not in worse shape than she is. Because technically, um, I think she said that she should have been in a coma, really. Right, yes. That's what Sextus told her she would find was Gideon in a coma. <laughs> My, I, I mean, it, okay, no, just go, Lisa. No, you can get. No, mine's something different. Oh. I just think it... it, it goes to I don't mean I, I don't know how I want to say this but like the fact that Gideon was okay afterwards like it, it makes me wonder like is Gideon more than just a cavalier or is it because of her her ties to Harrow because Harrow has like been inside her mind did Harrow do something to her to make her more powerful than just a cavalier that that's why she was okay like, that was what was going through my mind as all of that was happening. Right. Like, is there something different about Gideon? Like, why is she, I guess, so strong or able to handle that and come out of it feeling better than what Palamides thought Camilla would be able to do? Right. I just, I love the back and forth between Camilla and Gideon because they, they're like cavalier bonding. We're like... When she says my necromancer overreacted and Camilla softens to her uh, as someone whose necromancer is also prone to gross overreaction, overreaction. I would say Palamini, Sextus, and Hera Hark, Nonagesimus are like not even two sides of the same coin. They're very similar. And you can, it's kind of cool that like these two calves who are very different but both very skilled in their own way bond over that. Like that's the thing that they bond, like they connect with and just kind of like, yeah, my, my necromancer overreacts. And it's like, like, Oh yeah. Preach. Yeah. Preach. Right. <laughs> and of course, Emily, this is your favorite character or one of your favorite characters. And one of mine too, Camilla hacked, but this is us seeing like her not super defensive. Last time we kind of saw them, you know, setting aside the dinner party and, and the, all the, the murderous, you know, investigation, you know, was when she, faced off with Gideon in the stairwell. This is the first time we're seeing her in the light. Gideon's taking note of her. Um, and she's just, a, to me, a really interesting character. She's very, like, it's stern and intense. Um, she, to me, feels more like a bodyguard. Like this, like, assassin bodyguard. Um, 
compared to other Cavaliers. And I want to kick it to you because I know this is one of your favorite houses. I honestly feel like she's such a mirror to Gideon in kind of the opposite way. Whereas Gideon's like big and bulky and super powerful. Uh, Cam is like very flexible and quick and, you know, but I like their bonding, especially when they're walking down the hall and Gideon kind of starts to lean over. And instead of Camila, like helping her and holding her up, she just gives her like a gruff shoulder (laughs) to to, like kind of push her back up to standing. And it's just those unique things that Muir puts in there to give Camilla like a specific character, you know, it makes her feel like 100% unique herself that instead of like offering her arm or being kind and gentle, she's just going to shoulder her like, come on, stand up. (laughs) Like, let's go. Mm -hmm. Says a lot about personality too. It reminds me a lot of like, like a sports movie where like the team, everyone on the team is new to the team and they're all like either in the locker room or in practice and they're like getting to know each other. And there's that, like that awkward, like, okay, we, we know we're different, but we know we're probably going to be friends. Just like, just work with me. All right. Yeah. And kind of that awkward, like bonding in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Um, and of course we hear from Corona Beth, um, Corona for short, talking to teacher, trying to get her own key. And again, we're hit now with more out in the open, less introspection, but more of a character actually saying it, her being like, how the hell are we going to solve this puzzle if everyone has different pieces of it and no one wants to share it? Now, going to give Corona Beth the credit that uh, she's one of the first characters to outwardly... Kind of voice that, yeah. Because yeah. you get the sense that there's probably a couple of characters that are thinking this, but she's outwardly voicing it. But I think it's funny that she's outwardly voicing it to teacher like not like teacher's pet vibe but like everyone else that's thinking of it and making private alliances or maybe like talking amongst themselves about this this idea this worry and she's going straight to the professor essentially being like this is a concern that i have about what's happening i think these last chapters like especially this one the plot is really starting to ramp up and I think in this one where we're, we're having direct conversation, like you said, about the purpose of the keys and how many there are, which is something that wasn't, was pretty obscure up until now, is um, kind of building that next layer of intrigue for what is the electoral ascension process? Like, what are they trying to do here? So, so less theories, but hearing Corona speak that to teacher, what, what's going through your head? Like... Are you thinking maybe she's overreacting or because we started this read, at least when we got to Cannon House with this competition, contest of champions vibes. Everyone's out to be number one. There can only be one Highlander. There can only be one Lictor. Um, And we're very quickly seeing that that might not be the case. But now we're hearing characters voicing it. So we're really getting into it here to the point where allegiances are trying to be made with Judith Deuterus fighting almost with. Palamides being like, we need to work together. What's happening is not okay. People shouldn't be dying here. I'm going to step forth and say it's time for the second house to to push here and and combine forces with you to, to Palamides. And Pal is just like not having it. And I love that, like, you know, as, as an aside, as about the, like, you know, he's basically like telling him, you need to join me. Or I'm sorry, she's basically telling Palamides, you need to join me and we're going to join forces and make an allegiance here and start working together to collect these keys. And Palamides is not having it. And then like, there's a moment 
where you think they're gonna fight, like like yeah, the altercation might happen. And I love that Gideon is just sitting there eating while this is all happening, and she's just like Gideon, who had just eaten one and a quarter dinners, felt unbelievably unready for whatever was about to go down. <laughs> That would be the equivalent of I'm just gonna sit here and eat my popcorn and watch these two people go at it. It's right. It's the popcorn or the gift. tea. It's like you didn't say. Well, I think right here, like I said, the plot is starting to thicken. So you kind of get the idea that the resources are limited. So how is the group going to react to knowing that they all hold different pieces of the puzzle? Is shit going to hit the fan or is everyone going to come together and work as a big happy team? And as we get more into it, we're going to see how they all take that knowledge. Yeah, I think especially now that they know that lives are at stake here, considering everything that has gone down. um, You know, now they start getting, you know, having second thoughts about like, okay, we probably really need to work together because otherwise, you know, we can try to kill each other off to, to do it, but it's probably easier just to work together versus trying to kill each other off or steal keys from each other. <clears throat> and then in the end, they'll figure out who's going to end up becoming Lictor. So we get to see a little bit of Sixth House necromancy in this one, which we've vaguely seen when we when Palamides was checking on Hera when she was in her cocoon. Um, but it was really cool to see them shine a bit in this chapter and be just like, you know, they they seem kind of, I don't know what pompous is the right word, but they definitely seem a little standoffish, um, but not in a pretentious way. Um, but we can, but we know that these two people are capable, but they're also capable of, you know, standing their ground and not being pushed around by the second house. And then we see Palamides working his magic quite literally um, at the body in the morgue, um, of Magnus using his uh, wedding ring to try and figure out some more information about um, his death and where, where the key, the key is. is. Well, I thought he was yes. trying to look for where the but key is. But he also is. was yeah. able to deduce that they didn't just die yeah. from the fall. And that's kind of where we end the chapter. And right. I know what you guys thought about that or just in general, you know, what do you thought about that power? As far as superpowers go and necromancy goes, I, I love the concept of necromancy. I don't know what that says about me as a person. <laughs> I also love the afterlife and, and just different takes on the afterlife. And I love the idea of memories and or just even information, thoughts or or uh, dreams being tied to an object. Um, I don't know if that's because I have way too many creature comforts in my life. Uh, but it's really cool that the sixth house can it's not really weaponizing it, but they can they can utilize that uh, those remnants, that detritus, with their necromancy and learn from it. And I want to know what you guys thought about it. Um, you know what I was going to say? It actually kind of reminds me of, I guess, I mean, in a way, it's, uh, it's not necessarily parallel, but very like kind of kind of similar. Is like that show Medium, <laughs> like where she goes and sees like. You know, like what happened to that person? Yeah. Um, and th- obviously, this is like a different take on that. But uh, I that that kind of came up in my head when when you know he was you know taking the clothes and you know cutting them up and putting them in the little satchel or whatever and 
that's what I just, mm-hmm. that's what the, that was the first thing that actually came to mind when, when I actually read that part of the book. Um, and it's also interesting just to see how every, like how all the different houses, how their, how their uh, powers have come together to either help solve this mystery or just to be showcased, you know, throughout the uh, chapters. Um, and it kind of just gives me a little bit more insight as to how, e- you know, each house actually works. I like. I think that's a good point, Junior. I like the way it's kind of breadcrumbs throughout the chapters. Like, there's never a single uh, exposition or information dump where it's like, "This is how this magic works." It's just like every once in a while, Gideon's observing, um, you know, the eighth house siphoning, and then now the sixth house doing their magic where they're tracking uh, signatures from objects that were touched by the person who owned them. So it's just, it is fun, like you said, or interesting to see it kind of, you know, breadcrumbs throughout the text. It depends on the necromancer too, right? Because some of them are more forthcoming with the information or proud of it. Um, That's true. Or And some of them yes, just yes, like absolutely. do it and like, like yeah, I guess Yanthe just fucking bit Nibiru's hand and just cannibalizing him. Into- yeah, that was yeah, a weird sorry, one. eating him. <laughs> eating him. And yeah, that was a weird one right there. Ripping off like, his okay, hair. And-, and in this chapter, we get, you know, Palamides, who just comes straight up and is like, oh, our reputation doesn't precede us, I see. The energy attaches to more than just the body, Ninth. Psychochemistry can track the the energy lingering in objects. So, to me, that's super cool because it... it it's branching out the idea of what necromancy can be. It's not just something with corpses and a physical body. It can be more spiritual, but not in like a not like a religious kind of way or like in a like a the body soul kind of way. I mean, I guess it is, but it's more of like the traces of things we leave that we interact with that we leave behind. And to me, as someone who's very aware of their mortality and fascinated by. Uh, the afterlife and, and, and ghosts and that sort of thing um, that just always stick out to me is a really cool branch of necromancy and something that I was not anticipating on this read. Yeah, and like with that, I think it's cool how they kind of have like every, you know, they're, they're, they're all a necromancer, but they all have different like specialties and it's almost like, like how you... Um, you know, study something in school. It's like you're all going to school to get like a bachelor's degree, but you could have a bachelor's degree in, you know, different areas. And it's interesting to see as we're going how Gideon's observing how each of them uses the magic differently mm-hmm. and how they specialize on it. And that could be just because of like, and it could be based on like how they were raised and what kind of, you know, house they were raised in and what their beliefs were and stuff like that and how it changes the magic. They feel more focused than the ninth house too. And that's something that I didn't notice my first time reading it. But the ninth house, while is powerful in its own right, and we know Harrow is super powerful in her own way and very intelligent, the the specialties here, it, it seems like the other houses are very much focused on a specific type of necromancy that almost seem more daunting than what the ninth can do, which I know is not, 100% true. It just on my first read, I kind of like because our perspective is Gideon and, and following Harrow, and the ninth house is like our house going into it. You want them to be like, oh, they're, they're the most powerful one. They're the, they're the Super Saiyan house. But 
it's cool to see these other houses as not like secondary or lesser. They almost seem more complicated than what the ninth house can pull off. Because so far, the ninth house is just pretty re- is really good at constructs and bone theorems Bones. And, <laughs> and channeling uh, energy, but not focused on something like this, like where Palamides can, you know, deduce information from an object, from trace elements of a spirit. Yep, and the tenth house, I'll tell you, man, they're they're good at track times. I'll tell you, <laughs> I love it. So. There, there is a quote at by the end of this book that we will all look back on this uh, episode eight. Oh yes, about there's a quote in the in the future yep. that we'll come back to. I don't know what quote you're talking about. Too. <laughs> so, moving into the, closing up this episode, let's jump into chapter twenty two. Chapter 22, Prospectus. Gideon finds herself alone in her room doing her exercises while Harrow is off doing whatever it is she's doing. She doesn't return that evening and Gideon kills time by working with her sword, then takes a long, well-deserved, luxurious bath and reads her magazines. She falls asleep after her bath and wakes up nine hours later to find Harrow has returned to her room. Harrow goes to bed and refuses to talk about the keys with Gideon. Gideon gets dressed and takes herself to breakfast. Isaac from the fourth house corners Gideon, seeming troubled and overtired. Isaac tells Gideon that Jean-Marie needs her and that someone's dead. Gideon follows as he leads her past the pool, which is now filled with salt water and occupied by members of the third house. Isaac tells Tiberius and Corona the same, the same, and they join the procession following the uneasy team. Jean-Marie is out on one of the terraces in front of a still-smoking incinerator that has clearly been recently used. There are obvious cremains within. Isaac points out that they can't belong to one of the skeleton servants because there is fat and tissue present within the incinerator. After the group argues, Jean-Marie tells Gideon and Coronabeth that she only wanted to show them because Magnus had liked them. Later that day, there is a big rainstorm and many of the day's events are either canceled or put off by the grim atmosphere around Canhouse. Harrow never gets up from her sleep. The duel between the seventh and the eighth house is off since the seventh never showed up and aren't in their quarters. At dinner, Gideon learns about the duel's cancellation from Camilla, so she goes to check on Lady Dulcinea and her hulking bodyguard. She finds her sprawled across the conservatory floor, soaked through from the rain and near death. Before she faints in Gideon's arms, Dulcinea says that her cavalier never returned. Thank you, Lisa. Isaac, slow down. Corona had vaulted herself out of the water. In a flash of warm golden skin in her exceedingly long legs, and Gideon made her first and only devout prayer to the locked tomb of thankfulness and joy. Also my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> so those two lines from this chapter that I love, and before we jump into what we think is going on, uh, I wanted to read them. Let me find it. Yeah. So we get to see... Um, kind of like a breather a chapter between all the events that have been happening. It kind of ends with, I won't say a bang, but it ends with like a, like a heart throb or, or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of ends with that like roller coaster descending feeling. Like, like that, you know, the rug is pulled off from under us with, you know, Dulcie being on the rain and her calf not coming back. And now we're starting to, I guess be concerned. We don't really know much about pro, but it's, you know, I think out of concern for Dulcie, I know I was like, well, she needs her, you know, basically 
assistant, like her caretaker, because she can't 100% take care of herself. Now, we do get to see the other necromancers and calves just kind of like chilling, killing time, taking a breather, probably trying to like put some space between them and the grizzly murders and sort of do their exercises and kind of you know, do, do what they kind of going into their routines, um, which they would have known be doing had that not happened. And we see uh, the third house swimming in the pool and Gideon is just like super smitten as she has from the beginning over Corona. And so I wanted to read my favorite line from the chapter, hopefully before Lisa read hers, because I have a feeling it might be the same one. This is when um, they're, they're looking in the incinerator, all of them together. I, I believe Nibiru's changes out of his swimsuit or puts a towel on, but like Corona just walks out barefoot from the pool straight to where Jean-Marie is. And um, I'll read it. Corona Beth was staring into the steaming ashes, brief singlet and shorts whipping in the wind, fine dry curls of gold escaping from the wet mass of her hair. She looked troubled, which made Gideon sad, but she was also soaked th- right through the skin, which made Gideon need a lie down. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the way Gideon thinks. Like she's, yeah, she's a she's human, and she's having human feelings and emotions, especially having not been a, introduced to or in the presence of people like Corona, and she's having like this crash course in coming of age emotions and hormones and all that goodness that comes from meeting new people. Um, but it's also super interesting because she's an empath and she's like is feeling bad for all these people that she just had all these good memories starting to kick off with. And I just love any time we get to be in, in her mind and she hits with those little comedic lines. That wasn't, that wasn't my favorite quote. I actually didn't have one that stood out to me as I usually do in this chapter, but I did have a moment that stood out to me, which I thought was hilarious was how like confused Gideon was by a bath. <laughs> and how she like was just like she's it says like when she turned on the hot liquid tap and nothing jumped out at her she decided to sit in the water but then at after it she like didn't trust that she was clean so she like went in the sauna and she's, she's just like the, I don't I don't know but I, I don't feel clean I don't know what this is I have to go over here they call it a sonic I think it's like a air like I always That's imagine right, it yeah, anyway it's like a like like a air um what's the word I'm looking for uh it's like the money tank that you jump into and that like shoots the money everywhere around you. Like it just blows hot air at you. Um, but in the, end, suspic- in the end, suspicious of how clean it really got you, she went and stood in the Sonic for 20 seconds. But <laughs> she, she also says in- that like... But she smelled incredible. She, she smelled incredible. And she was also like worried that like the she while in the bath, she's like, can the water get inside me and make me yes. sick? Like <laughs> such a interesting thing to be on her mind while sitting in what we would consider like a very mundane activity i mean it's i'm not gonna you know my i think my favorite line is the um bit of foreshadowing when it's gonna storm and it says when the storm broke it would break hard and you kind like you said at the end of this chapter you kind of feel like something like it that moment of free fall right like what is happening things are spiraling out of control and like there's about to be a storm that breaks because the chapter begins very familiar like okay, right we're, we're back to this again gideon's going through her routine she's taking this time for r&r she's looking at her naughty magazines i'm assuming harrow's gone again doing her own thing 
and then, then she's just gonna go get some food and like kind of going back into a routine and that routine just it's quickly like we're done with that now like the, things are happening and they're gonna start happening quickly um and all these necromancers and calves are like now they know each other a little bit better there's 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 more on the line here and I love that Jean-Marie specifically wanted to talk to um Gideon and Cam because she because Magnus liked them and it just shows you how close those two houses were and just how like devastating it is for them to to be still processing that grief and like last time we left the teens other than when they were snooping on them through the door they're like on patrol looking for Magnus and Abigail's killers just like very much out for vengeance and just trying to process their emotions and here we have them finding a body or the remnants of a body um in this incinerator in a really grotesque way of trying to figure out like scooping through the remains trying to be like what is this this is nothing and like oh there's actually fat and bone and particles like it is kind of yuck but uh i found it super um i don't think the empath i mean just it, 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 i felt very emotional reading this part because of how jean-marie and isaac were behaving towards these ashes because like we it's not they didn't find the killer but they didn't find we know that magnus and abigail are still in the morgue but they're like they're almost like too close to the case kind of, and then they're just very emotional and you, you, everyone's kind of giving that space. But, uh, I wonder what you guys thought about that and who you think was in the incinerator. And then, yeah. Well, I thought it was cool how they could tell, um, because I, f- I forget who it was. One of them, was it, uh, who was it? Was it, was it Babs who like f- moves the fork around and he's just like, you don't know that it's a person. And they're like, and that's when he says, he's like, Oh, you can see that there's like, you know, fat and oil and stuff like that. And I'm like, I thought that was like really cool. Cause I'm like, that he says that he's saying that it's basically just ash and dust at this point, but that could be like a necromantic ability of being able to say like, I can feel this ash and know that it was a human. And I thought that that was like a really cool thing to see, to be like, to uh, like, you know, just to us as a human, like it would just be like, Oh no, it's just ash. I wouldn't be able to tell this ash from if it was just firewood or human, right. Let alone them being like, I can tell it's like fat and tissue. And I'm like, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little gross. <laughs> I think it's actually Column too that's there. It's kind of scraping through with a rake. Um, and he's like, you know, we would need a bone magician to figure out more here, but this is what I've been able, you know, what I've been able to deduce. Um, and it gets everybody going, you know, the fourth, you know, Isaac and Jean Marie, they kind of want to like fight Nibiris because he's, he's a prick. Like, and I think everyone would agree he's, despite being probably a, a, a loyal um, cavalier to the third house. He's an unpleasant person. He's very much a narcissistic, selfish person. And he's very dismissive over their concerns, um, which to me is super sus rather the gate. But then it almost gets uh, like undermined by the way Corona acts because she's like the complete opposite of that. Um, he, he, when he's mouthing off, even Corona Beth is like, Bab, shut your mouth and fix your hair, said Corona. Don't discount this straight off the bat. So I thought I was kind of suspect that um, that Babs was being so dismissive over Jean-Marie, but it's also so on brand for him to be a prick about something in, insensitive over something like this that it kind of 
broke even. And I just want to say the way that Moira Quirk delivers his line in the audiobook when Bab says, These are ghost stories, doll. You're both cracking up. Like, I cannot even do it justice. But if you're listening to the audio, pay attention to that line because she just gives Niberius this perfectly, like, um, snobby, disdainful, like, kind of condescension in the tone and the way that she delivers that line. It was like, this summarizes his entire personality in this one line in the way that she delivered it. I'm not big on the um, audiobook. Like I, I, I like it and I enjoy it, but it's hard. It's hard for me to comprehend. But I have to say, I did use the audiobook for this chapter, and I'm really glad that I did. Yes, there's so much back and forth and and yeah. drama and arguments between all the the houses, and you're really getting to see like the I don't want to say like the humanity of them all, but you're seeing that the, their facades all start to break, um, and they're not putting on their best faces. Uh, for the sake of lichterhood and ascending to the first house, like the, this is like starting to get survival mode and, and we're starting to see like the real them. It's like when you, oh, you're on vacation for like a week with a bunch of friends or, or you spend a lot of time with some friends and, you know, people slowly start to be more comfortable uh, and kind of show their true selves. It's, it's kind, of, kind of like that. Um, but yeah. And shout out to Nima. I know Babs is your favorite character, so... I know. I was thinking that, too. In this chapter, they even say that... Or maybe it was the chapter before where she can see his, like, 54 abs. I think it's like... Fi- oh, when he, when he gets out of the yeah, pool. When of the yeah, pool. when he gets out of the yeah. pool. It's like his shirt... I literally rolled my eyes when I saw it. When I heard that line. She, like... Gideon, like, makes a specific comment on that. She's like, he gets out of the pool in a shirt that's too small for yeah. him. I'm pretty sure, and that's that's why she can see like the 54 muscles underneath. But she like specifically points out that the shirt was too small for him. Yes. <laughs> but we end the chapter with Dulcie in the rain, by herself, sprawled on the ground, sprawled on the ground once again. Gideon coming to the damsel in distress's rescue, um, and I don't think Dulcie's. It's fair to call Dulcie a damsel in distress because she has like a condition. Um, so like it's not 100. percent You know she's not. Uh, 100% helpless for the sake of being either helpless or or taken advantage of. She literally does need help in transportation with herself. Um, but it does kind of leave us with this like gut punch feeling of, okay, he, break time's over, R&R is over, we're still in this, people got murdered recently. It's almost like that cold slap that we needed after kind of falling back into the routine of things. And that's kind of where I want to, you know, wrap this episode before you jump into the next one. But, uh, what are you guys thoughts towards the end of this, uh, these chapters? I'm excited to get to the um, next ones. Yeah. I'm actually more interested in talking about the chapters that follow these chapters because it gets very, very interesting to say the least. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is a good preamble getting into it. So we'll stop it there then. And uh, and jump right into our next episode here. We're going to do some uh, batch recording, so I'm pretty excited to jump in and talk about the next three chapters. But for now, thank you guys so much for hanging out and talking about uh, these chapters of Getting the Ninth, and to our, all of our listeners for uh, your support and and creating a little community around this podcast. These books mean a lot to me and Emily, and I'm hoping that. By the end of the last, at least the last word, the last page, 
of this book, we will have made fans of uh, the series by Lisa and Junior, although I'm suspecting you guys are already digging it. <laughs> I'm already a fan. I was going to say, I'm, ha- I'm hating it. I'm hating this whole this whole journey. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to be on brand for your the podcast art of your face. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, love you guys. Thanks so much for hanging out. And I look forward to recording our next episode. And we'll definitely uh, be doing little Q&A questions for each episode on the Spotify and Anchor accounts for the podcast. So keep an eye out for that for our listeners. And as always, thank you to the Wikigo Books community for making cool content like this possible. And a special shout out to Chelsea Lankis and Dance with the Dead for providing us with an awesome tune to come in and out with for our intro and outro. Um, that's going to wrap it up, guys. So we'll see you in the next one. Stay wicked. <laughs>